Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 169, The Most Fundamental Duality. We're joined again by Zen Master Diane Musho Hamilton to discuss the most fundamental duality, what some have called masculine and feminine. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. You were giving a talk here in Boulder a couple months ago, and you are saying that you're really interested in this dynamic between what you're calling masculine and feminine, mm-hmm. and that it was really helpful for you, but not helpful for everybody, but you did talk a lot about it. And right. um, yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this distinction and why it's something that you've been focusing on lately and why it's something that you're interested in. Yeah, I think that's a great question because in a certain way, since everything is one bright jewel (laughs) why would you make a distinction between something like masculine and feminine the reason I make the distinction is because in my own practice and in my life masculine and feminine occurs to me as the most fundamental duality in our experience and that all creativity is born of this polarity when masculine and feminine energy come together it has the most creative potential so critics of using masculine and feminine would say there's no point to it because first of all it can't be defined what do we really mean by feminine and plenty of men have feminine traits and why do women get to appropriate nurturing and they're not really more supportive of men it may look different but there's support and there's certainly receptivity so there's a big objection to making this distinction and I understand that and I think it's reasonable not to make the distinction but I've just found in my own life that when I start to see first of all I'm a woman and I have a distinctive experience in myself of what I, what I would call my feminine traits and the basket of traits of mine that are masculine, which has more to do with direction and focus and purposiveness and impersonal identification and forwarding direction and pushing through regardless of obstacles as opposed to a kind of receptivity and flow, a kind of embrace of what is as opposed to an impulse to change what's happening. Again, even as I say it, I can hear people saying, it's certainly not male and female. But for me, the baskets, the gestalt, of you, if you will, of masculine and feminine helps a lot in terms of holding a lot of qualities in one gestalt that I can work with. So, you know, an artist has to have deep receptivity and really know how to cultivate and how to nurture a process if you're a painter, let's say, for instance. And at the same time, there's a great film that came out in a quite a few years ago now, actually, of Picasso painting, where they filmed the canvas from the front. I guess they filmed it from the front and he painted from the back, so you got to see the canvas come to light, and you actually got to see his struggle, and you got to really experience the interplay of this deep kind of receptivity and then this kind of pushing up against and grappling with and seeing those two and how they interact. And for me, I found that the more that I pay attention to that polarity, the more I can work with it. So even in Zazen, for instance, noticing that as I sit, that there is a dimension of sitting which has to do with relaxation, has to do with opening, it has to do with receiving 
whatever's arising, if you will. And on the other side of that, the wakeful part of it, the purposive, straight spine, focused, upright, present, that in a way there's always this dance between these two poles. So I think I tend to be interested in polarity generally and how to work with the energetic play. And so in my communications work, really teaching people and helping them see when they're receiving and how deeply they're receiving versus when they're asserting and when they're forwarding an I position and what the dance of that is so that you can become more skillful, you make it more conscious. So I would say that I'm kind of traveling outside of conventional Zen practice to work in this way with masculine and feminine, but I've found it helpful in my own life. So Nice. And I, and I get the sense for a lot of people, like maybe one side of that is more comfortable. Like I certainly have seen the purpose and, and clarity and the masculine qualities. I, I'm much more comfortable with that. Yeah. And and then lately and working with you, like I felt, mm-hmm. oh, wow, there's this other side of me that mm-hmm. I really need to learn how to open up to. And, mm-hmm. and so it seems like there's some way in which at least becoming familiar with mm-hmm. those two things is really helpful. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I always say don't call it masculine and feminine if it's offensive, just call it receptivity and directionality or focused purposiveness versus open receiving or, you know, they're all different kinds of ways to talk about. It's a whole continuum of qualities. But yeah, I think so. And then, you know, sometimes I just feel that in the post-feminist period, that, you know, we talk about development as being identification, disidentification, re-identification. So we're identified and embedded as women in whatever that means culturally, energetically, behaviorally. And then we disidentify in the process, and feminism becomes a kind of disidentification with those embedded roles and those uh, embedded identifications. But then there's another step in development where we re-identify. So to be able to re-identify fully as a female with feminine traits, whatever you think those are, the fact that as you and I are speaking to each other, the quality of my voice conveys something about the nature of my body versus yours, and that everybody who's listening to us knows that I'm a female and knows that you're a male, and that why we wouldn't be able to find a way to work with and acknowledge those differences and the samenesses, and it's partly the reason we don't want to is it's just very hard to pin it all down. But it's more for me like it's a field of play, a field of exploration. You know, what does it mean to our dialogue that I'm female and you're male. How's that affecting how we understand and receive each other? Would it be different if I were a male teacher sitting here? I think it probably would. So I don't mind creating a little space to recognize the differences and the impacts of that because I am a a woman teacher, even though all my teachers were male. Interesting. And that brings up an interesting question for Mm -hmm. me, which is that traditionally Zen is a very sort of male lineage and practice. Yes. At least it has been mm-hmm. in China and Japan, and it seems to be changing now in the, mm-hmm. in the West. But I know that in your lineage, sort of the main bodhisattva is Kanzian, mm-hmm. that uh, your teacher's place is the Kanzian Zen Center. Yeah, and, um, it used to be. It, it's now the Big Mind big Center. Mind now, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that Kanzian was a really important figure for you. Mm-hmm. And um, I was wondering if you could say maybe a little bit about besides Kanzian or including Kanzian, how you've maintained a relationship uh, mm-hmm. to the feminine sort of mm-hmm. quality of Zen, mm-hmm. given that it's such a strongly masculine, using mm-hmm. the way we're talking about masculine tradition. Well, let me just make a couple of distinctions that might be helpful to the conversation. So we want to distinguish, of course, between male and female bodies and male and female identity, because obviously they're 
transgendered people where the body and the identity don't necessarily sync up and people are working that out. So we want to make the distinction between bodies, identity, between energies, you know, you might say the human energy of masculine and feminine, what those qualities are, and then maybe even from a Taoist perspective, the principles. And I know that the Taoist tradition and the Buddhist tradition and the Hindu tradition actually describe masculine feminine somewhat differently. If you look at how the feminine's described in Hinduism, it's a little bit different than it is in Taoism, but that you can't ultimately separate these principles, that every experience, every moment of reality, in the moment beyond a unitive perception, there is masculine and feminine, there is giving and receiving, there is in this moment right now, I'm speaking and you're receiving me. So there's a exchange happening. This dualism is at play all the time. And so you can't take that away. So Zen practice at some level is always masculine and feminine. It just is because the principles are always present. As I said in Zazen, you're receiving, you're open, you're spacious. At the same moment, you're focused upright and directional. Those are both present. And I could go on and on talking about the different ways in which the principles and the energy of masculine and feminine are there. At the same time, it's also true that Zen, like most of the religious traditions, was grown up by men practicing together, mostly monks, sitting in you know, a rigorous practice with rigorous confrontations that have a kind of masculine style. It's not so much about embrace as it is about challenge. Although the embrace, again, always emerges. You can't get rid of it. But it does have a kind of samurai masculinity to it. That's just true. And yet, paradoxically, the Bodhisattva of Compassion in Japan, Kanzian Bodhisattva, is a feminine figure. She comes from Kuan Yin in China, even though in India, Avalokiteshvara, I believe, is a male, and Chinrezig maybe is both. I'm not sure. I know there's some transgendered point in Kuan Yin's there's evolution. switching over. <laughs> yeah, there's a switching over happening. So, for whatever reason, Roshi actually named the Kanzian Zen Center Kanzian because he precisely wanted to cultivate more quality of the feminine, of that kind of supportive, embrace, nurturing, um, more flowing kind of energy as opposed to that really kind of intense, rigorous, which can get very heightened in Zen practice. So he did that. And I just have had funny, magical experiences with Kuan Yin and Kanzian. I mean, I, you know, it's kind of, this is, seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky, so I'll be seriously risky, <laughs> which is to say that I actually have a kind of a one of the royal ease postures in which Kanzian's in, a statue that I, one night in the garden, literally this statue, and I was with two or three other of my friends, and there was a certain set of circumstances that were happening, but at the same moment, we all saw that she was breathing, and I know in a in a rational world, in a post-rational world, that's a risky thing to say. But for two hours, she literally breathed. So I got very interested in this emanation of compassion, and particularly this feminine form of compassion. So I've paid a lot of attention to this energy, if you will, of Kuan Yin. And I feel very informed by her in a certain way. So. Nice, nice. And I know one way that you actively are bringing in masculine and feminine into your teaching is... Mm-hmm with making a distinction between masculine and feminine compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so like, I guess a Kanzian would be more of like an embodiment of the feminine compassion mm-hmm. principle. Yes. But uh, we talked a lot in the teaching and, uh-huh. and exploring from the individual perspective, like yeah. from the I perspective, 
the differences between these. And I found it really, really helpful. Oh, good. So I was wondering if you could say some about this distinction. Yeah, well, I I would say, again, you know, to the listening audience, if it doesn't work for you to call it masculine and feminine, we we don't have to because men and women have both qualities. But compassion conventionally takes the form when we think of compassion, most of us, what we think of is what we might call the feminine side, which is the embrace, the nurturing, the support, the quality of care, the quality of allowing things to be simply as they are, just really, really deep, unconditioned acceptance of what is. So this compassionate response that just feels like everything's okay, that you're perfect as you are, that things couldn't be improved upon, and that there's something very loving in all of that, a very loving gesture. And people can identify with that. But as we talked earlier about duality, that quality of compassion, if it's not joined with wisdom in the Buddhist tradition, we talk about it becoming referred to as idiot compassion, where what happens, it becomes a kind of enabling or it reinforces qualities in people that just simply aren't clarified and aren't healthy, you know, like addictive behavior that doesn't get cut through that needs to, or we don't cultivate a healthy discipline because it's all okay. So the so we start to see that the flip of that, which is more a more challenging energy and a more cutting energy, again, in just simple duality referred to as the masculine, that kind of cuts through, that's fearless, that isn't attending to people's feelings, that's very impersonal and very catalytic in a way. I have an incident in my own history where my teacher was really furious with me. And just his rage or his anger coming towards me in in like a thunderbolt quality and how much it woke me up and just heightened the situation where if he had just simply told me it was okay, I was kind of going to sleep. So we need both and we need to clarify this because some of us are really comfortable with the more feminine side and we get anxious about hurting someone or hurting someone's feelings or being too reckless, if you will, which is fair fear. But the reverse is also true. Some people go around with just a little bit of a tough nature and forget that in order for that compassion to be effective, there has to be a really deep sense of care. So the two really always need to attend each other. It's just a question of amount. Nice. And it sounds like somehow having wisdom involved is like the key in, mm-hmm. in seeing Yeah, seeing that's right. That. Yeah, being able to really see clearly. I have a story about my own son who, um, my son has Down syndrome and when he was about 15, he was invited to be in a performance for New Year's. And the great thing about having Down syndrome is that everything's just very immediate. So when he got anxious, his fright just took the form of he just got heavier and heavier and heavier. And pretty soon he was just in a pile on the floor. He was so anxious that he couldn't even, you know, he just looked like he collapsed. And my approach was to encourage him and to nurture him and to support him. And at a certain point, I just said, oh, get up and get out there. And when I did that, he literally got up and walked out there. <laughs> you know, so it's just this this thing that sometimes compassion has to be a little bit more more sharp and more direct. And I guess it's maybe to come full circle, because at the very beginning of my mm-hmm. question, you talked about why even make this distinction. Yeah. And I remember having hung out with a couple of Advaita teachers who mm-hmm. were very uncompromising. I remember mm-hmm. one guy, Carl Renz, he said, the beloved and the, he's German, so he's yeah. the beloved and the, and the lover, the, the moment they're born, that's hell. <laughs> and, he was, and he was just kept yeah. sort of 
pointing back at that. I remember you talking yeah. about Huang Po and how yeah. you would always point back to the yeah. the sort of absolute. Yes. I wonder if maybe if you could say a little bit about that because I know you do that too at times. That's mm-hmm. like kind of like you're saying the strength of Zen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder maybe if we could come back to that perspective. What he's really getting to is where there's dualities, there's pain, right? Where there's two, there's tension. You know, if there's a self and other, there's a natural tension, even if the tension could be erotic that you're drawn to each other, but there's still a tension there. Or maybe the tension's aggressive because you're pushing away from each other. But that when we become one with what is, the tension, the hell, as he described it, disappears. And that bliss and peace and satisfaction and serenity simply are. Whenever the two become one, there's an attendant moment of tremendous calm. That's just what it is. So if what you're looking for in life is peace, then a non-dual practice like Advaita or like Zen is really, as Banke, Zen Master Banke said, anything short of that doesn't scratch the itch. The itch of duality is only scratched by collapsing the subject-object and becoming one. And that's where genuine peace resides. But from a perspective of becoming, of evolving, of moving and changing, there's also a quality of passion and a quality of ecstasy to that. So it's hell because it's changeable. But it is another dimension of our humanness that I think is really important, that peace and the non-peace of evolving, of changing, of growing, that there's no growth without discomfort. Every moment of growth involves a disequilibrium, a discomfort, a coming out of balance. And I like a spirituality that includes both, that isn't simply about residing in a, in a space of unitive awareness, but actually, you know, that we're able to be one and two, and that the, the stress and the pain and the difficulty is just simply part of it. It's not something to be pushed away particularly. Now, you know, you don't need unnecessary suffering, and that's the whole point of practice is to really not eradicate, but just simply relax the ego so that there's unnecessary suffering isn't there. But I think growth and evolution is, that's what I like partly about the integral frame, is it includes evolution, it includes unfolding. And where there's growth, there's discomfort. So I wouldn't be the one to constantly point someone towards unitive experience, but rather to embrace both. And you're saying that your teacher Gempo is also mm-hmm. in that sort of style of teaching where mm-hmm. instead of always pointing back to the absolute, he points yes. rather to the opposite of where someone is. <laughs> yeah. Could you say a little bit about that? I found that an interesting point. <laughs> well, he's he's just, you know, he just is, I think, his genius and, and the genius of the koan system in Zen practice is that it just keeps you moving. In other words, in one moment, it's oneness. In the next moment, it's two-ness. In the next moment, it's misery. In the next moment, it's freedom. In the next moment, it's production. In the next moment, it's lovemaking. In the next moment, it's this. It's all this, but it has different qualities and that the mind, there's no resting place. That a true Zen mind is one which is available to whatever it is that's arising. You know, as Mother Teresa put it, Christ in all of his distressing disguises, all the ways in which reality is manifesting. And to be able to play and be free in one and two, because one and two is what's happening. One and two and the multiplicity of one and two. And Gempo's that way, you know, he's Gempo Roshi, I should say. You rest here and two minutes later, it's the next moment and he's pulling the rug out so that you keep waking up into the next thing. You don't get so comfortable in that place of, oh, it's all just what it is. 
So <laughs> it's cool. So wrapping up, is there anything that you'd want to say to a group of listeners who's into a show called Buddhist Geeks? <laughs> that you're seriously Buddhist and seriously geeky, from what I can tell. <laughs> and um, I think what I would like to say is that you're the very fact that you're tuned into this program means that some part of you, of your seeking mind, of your body mind, is awakened. And just to support you in, the, in that search and in that longing and in the discomfort that comes with really seeking realization and to continue to practice and continue to realize because there's tremendous dignity. And we're so fortunate in the West to actually be able to have received these teachings. So to practice and realize these teachings, I would encourage everyone listening to continue on their path. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.